0: This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. For those who think that Australia is just like the United States, consider this. In this country, breaking news is whether official interest rates have gone up or down. But in the United States, it's who's been selected to be a member of the Supreme Court. In Australia most of us wouldn't be able to name a single member of our High Court or even how many judges we have or who our Chief Justice is. But in the US, the Supreme Court is a crucial part of the Federal Government. How many judges a President is able to appoint to the Supreme Court is often a defining part of that President's term in office. The President selects the judges when a position falls vacant through death or retirement. But that new judge needs to be approved by the Senate, and that's where the problems often begin. It's the most politicized process in the U.S. political system and has a huge effect on the daily lives of Americans. A few months ago, we spoke to Barbara Perry about the Kennedy family, and now she's back to discuss the Supreme Court. Barbara, a very good morning and welcome to the program.
1: Rod, great to be with you as always.
0: Has the Supreme Court always been hugely political?
1: Yes, And that should not be surprising, given that it is a government institution, one of the three main branches of the national government and that it is going to have to be dealing with political issues eventually. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, the the famous observer, French observer of American democracy in the 1830s said that uh, Americans are so litigious, that is they bring just about any case possible to the Supreme Court or to any court that they can find. And in fact, it's a, a, a statement that people will say in the United States, I'm taking my case all the way to the Supreme Court. And sometimes people manage to do that. Uh, But it it is the case then that uh, because of that, because just about any political issue, as Tocqueville said, eventually will become a judicial one, that inevitably politics, government and the judiciary are intertwined. Having said that, the founding fathers of the United States in writing our current constitution in 1787 had hoped to at least make one step removed from politics the Supreme Court and all the federal judgeships by making them appointed, as you say, by the president and with the consent of the Senate, confirm or not, as the case may be, at least that removed them from electoral politics. But it's inevitable that politics will surround their appointments and oftentimes what they do in their case decisions.
0: Is the major problem here the fact that those judges are appointed for life? They don't have to stand down at a certain age or after a certain term. They are there forever.
1: I guess it depends on how one defines problem Uh, for, again, for the founders, they thought this was a solution to a problem. That is uh, appointment, as the Constitution reads, for good behavior, uh, which has ended up in practice being for life, as you say, until those shuffle off the mortal coil uh, or decide to retire, as this uh, Justice Breyer has done most recently and a position opened up to be filled by President Biden. Uh, so for those who want them uh, released from politics, released from having to run for office or run for re-election, Uh, or stand, as you say, in in Australia, or collect money in order to stand for Uh, re-election. They are removed from that. They're isolated from that. But on the other side of the equation, the problem is uh, having judges and justices in the federal system, especially at the Supreme Court, uh, seemingly serving forever. And yet that was supposed to take them out of politics as well by making sure that, Uh, For example, we have Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court right now, uh, and he was appointed by George H.W. Bush in the early 1990s. So one would think that would remove him from the politics of the 1990s. It does, but it just means that he can use whatever kinds of political views he has in deciding cases currently.
0: So in Australia, we had a referendum that resolved that the high court judges should retire at the age of 70. And until recently, most of them left long before getting to that age. With the Supreme Court, that's not the case. How does somebody remove a Supreme Court judge if that became necessary? You mentioned Clarence Thomas. His wife has been hugely controversial.
1: She has been. The only way to remove a justice or a federal judge at either of the other two levels below the U.S. Supreme Court level, which is the highest court in the land, and there's another layer of appeals court below that, and then so-called district courts, those are our trial courts at the federal level. The only way to remove a judge or a justice is by the impeachment process, whereby the House of Representatives would vote to impeach usually for an impropriety that typically has related to the lower federal judges, uh, to some sort of corruption, taking money, taking bribes, that sort of thing. And not very many of them. Thank goodness we've had a pretty good federal judiciary. So not very many of them have been impeached. And then they would have to go as a president would to the Senate for a trial to be convicted and removed, or to be exonerated. So we've had very few federal judges at any level uh, who've been impeached, tried, convicted, and removed only a, a, a relative handful, let's say 15 to 20 at the lower federal court level. Only one Uh, justice going way back into the founding era was impeached, that is indicted, but he was not found guilty in the Senate trial. So no Supreme Court justice, and there have been now some 115 or so of them, uh, has ever been impeached and convicted and removed. So there is no way to remove uh, a justice or judge short of that procedure. I suppose
0: one of the things about making these appointments for life is that you do take it away from the presidential election cycle that if you knew that several, one, two, three judges perhaps, their term was due to come up during your presidency, that becomes a huge issue in the campaign.
1: Well, in, indeed. And we've had times when it has been the case that Supreme Court appointments or members of the current court are controversial or their decisions have been controversial and they do become uh, the, the court itself as an institution and sometimes individual judges or justices in this instance, uh, become a, a part of the, the process of the election, that is, it's, it's part of a policy that is put forward by one candidate or another to say, these are the kinds of people I would appoint if I had an opening on the Supreme Court. Uh, and in the case of uh, Justice Antonin Scalia, who died suddenly, uh, while still on the bench, Uh, died uh, while on a trip to Texas in February of 2016. Uh, Many people may have read about the controversy surrounding that. That would have seemed to give uh, President Obama another opening. That would have been his third opening on the court. Uh, It would have been in the last year of his term. We were coming up in 2016 in November of that year to an election, but there were still many months intervening. And yet, uh, despite the fact that President Obama nominated actually now our current attorney general, Merrick Garland, to be on the Supreme Court moving up from a appellate a court level, that it was blocked by Senator Mitch McConnell, who is at that time was the majority leader of the Senate for the Republican Party. He just said, we won't even give. Uh, an opportunity to Merrick Garland to come before our Judiciary Committee and make his case. We we just won't even do a process to allow him to come before the Senate. So there was no opportunity even for a vote for him. So obviously that was a very important issue yeah. uh, in the 26 campaign between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump.
0: Is that one of the most disgraceful things that's happened in the history of the Supreme Court? That really the Senate's job is to advise and consent the president is there for his full term, not for three years, but for four years. And if a position falls vacant in that fourth year, he has every right to fill that place on the court.
1: Well, he absolutely does. And uh, at least what I would ask from someone like Senator McConnell is at least consistency. So then when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away in September uh, of 2020, it was the case that McConnell pushed through very quickly uh, Amy Coney Barrett within a matter of a few weeks. Uh, to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. So I, I agree with you. It doesn't say with an asterisk in the Constitution that if an election is approaching within a certain number of days or months or weeks that there cannot be an appointment made to the Supreme Court. It says no such thing. But if indeed McConnell wanted to make this argument, which I thought was totally wrong and, yes, was one of the most disgraceful things, I wouldn't say that it reflected poorly on the Supreme Court. I would say it reflected poorly on Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party in the Senate. Um, but to, to say that as it related to Obama, someone from an opposite party from Mitch McConnell, but then to say for Trump, oh, within a few weeks of the approaching 2020 election, he got to fill the seat of the deceased. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was completely inconsistent.
0: In the lead up to the election, it was often floated that if President Biden won, he would add more judges to the court to either restore the balance or give a an advantage perhaps to Democrat nominated or Democrat appointed judges on the Supreme Court is that ever likely to happen and would that be kind of just an arms race that when a Republican president came in they do the same thing?
1: Well, we know what was one strategy of the arms race back in the Cold War period, particularly in the 1960s of what was called mutually assured destruction, that both the United States and the Soviet Union knew that they had enough nuclear weapons to destroy not only themselves many times over as countries but the entire planet, uh, so that at least dealing with rational actors would cause both countries to be very careful about firing off the first nuclear weapon. Uh, So there is sort of a mutually assured destruction here. The the thing I think to keep in mind is that president does not get to determine the number of seats on the Supreme Court. It is not listed in stone in the Constitution, it is left up to the Congress to determine how many seats should be on the Supreme Court. It has been nine since 1869, but it had varied anywhere from five to 10 from the founding up until 1869. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt tried Mm. to push the Congress to increase the members of the court when he had a court that was very conservative and was striking down his progressive liberal New Deal legislation in his first term, and no one left the court in the first term of FDR. So he came up with this scheme whereby he said, there's so many elderly people on the Supreme Court, I think they're behind in their work. So for every justice, Seventy five or older, I, the president, will be allowed to appoint a new member of the court up to a total of members of court 15. Uh, the Congress would not accept that. And so it was not ever implemented. And just to make a point about how, at least in those days, Americans saw the Supreme Court as very much of an independent, should be nonpolitical body, Franklin Roosevelt had just been reelected in 1936 by a landslide. He got two thirds of the popular vote. And yet, never a majority of Americans supported his, what is called his court packing scheme. So he had to rely then on packing it, as my mentor, who was a, an expert on the Supreme Court, used to say, he had to pack it the old fashioned way. Hmm. He had to wait until people left or died. And by the time he had served in office 12 years as president with four different elections, which now is impossible because We have term limits. But he was able to appoint all nine members of the Supreme Court, including the Chief Justice, eventually.
0: We're talking to Barbara Perry about the U.S. Supreme Court. Another ongoing argument with the court is about originalists or constitutionalists who say that they interpret the Constitution, which is what the Supreme Court does. They interpret it the way the founding fathers wrote it. Is that even possible? Is that realistic? 250 years on from when the Founding Fathers devised the Constitution in the Supreme Court?
1: I think it is possible. I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with that approach to jurisprudence, but originalism does indicate that, yes, that the original wording of the Constitution should be used, as the words were understood at the time, and we have had over 20, nearly 30 amendments to the U.S. Constitution since 1789 when it went into effect. So obviously in some ways the court has had a constitution that's been kept somewhat up to date uh, for the United States, adding, for example, the right for 18-year-olds to vote in 1971, the right for women to vote in 1920, the right for black males to vote uh, in 1869, So it had been updated over the years through these constitutional amendments. But there's also another element of originalism that some members of the court who believe in it will talk about as the original intent of the framers of the Constitution, not just the words they used, but what they intended by those words. I think that's much more problematic. Who's to know what all of these people thought as they gathered in Philadelphia for Mm -hmm. the Constitutional Convention in the summer of 1787? It wasn't just one person. And who wrote the constitution and said, and this is what I mean by every word. So I, I think that that's problematic from the start. But there are justices, particularly now on the uh, side of the conservatives who have that view of originalism. And Clarence Thomas is one of them and is leading the pack of now six conservatives who tend in that direction.
0: It's impossible for the founding fathers to have determined how the rest of the nation should feel about something 250 years later with issues that weren't even considered or weren't even around 250 years ago.
1: Well that is so true. Uh there's there's no sense that they would have understood Uh, the growth in the electorate, as just by my examples of the amendments to the Constitution, adding more and more people to the point where now we have, at least in theory, universal suffrage in the United States. Everyone 18 years old and over uh, is technically allowed to vote in this country. They could not have comprehended that, I don't think. Uh, They thought in terms of only the people who could vote in their era white male property owners, typically over the age of about 25. And even at that, though, they put into the Constitution all of these checks on the popular will, including our bizarre electoral college. So it gives me a sense that they must have thought at some point the electorate would expand because they themselves were white male property owners over age 25. But apparently they didn't even trust themselves (laughs) because they still had an electoral college from the beginning that was meant Mm -hmm. to check the Vox Populi. We also have to give them credit, though, for founding a republic in 1787. And the fact that for them, the thing that they worried most about was demagoguery, that a demagogue, as in ancient Greece, would start to lead the mob and you'd you'd go from a republic to a democracy to a mobocracy. And unfortunately, the thing they feared the most, in my view, came to pass uh, in the demagoguery of Donald Trump and the insurrection in this country of January 6, 2021. Mm. So I think that, that they had these fears of the people and the whims and passions of the people. That's why we have a representative government rather than direct democracy. But yes, they, they couldn't have thought in terms that of all the issues that we now yeah. face. Think of the internet just as a perfect example. How could they have ever contemplated such a thing?
0: Recently, the court May have changed its mind, we don't know yet, but it seems likely on a significant abortion case. Is it fair to say that the Trump presidency and the behaviour of Senate Republicans like Mitch McConnell was all about that one issue, that that's all they really were concerned about in the Trump presidency was to get as many people on the Supreme Court as possible?
1: I think that for someone like Mitch McConnell and because I come from his home state of Kentucky and his now adopted hometown he was born in Alabama but uh, at the age of seven moved to my hometown of Louisville Kentucky we went to the same university he is somewhat older than I I would like to add Uh, but I've known him since he was a young up-and-coming partisan in the local Republican Party of Louisville, Kentucky, and I've actually worked in his center at the University of Louisville. So I feel that I I know him pretty well, and what he cares about is being the majority leader of the Senate. Unlike most members of the United States Senate who want to be presidents, (laughs) Mitch McConnell has never aspired to the White House. He wants to be the majority leader of the Senate. So he wants that power. He wants his party to be in the majority. And his conservatism, I think, is not so much along the social lines that People care about in the conservative realm of abortion, as examples, or even guns, but rather the economy and business. Mitch McConnell doesn't want high taxes. He doesn't want lots of regulation on business. I think that's the nature of his conservatism, but he comes from a very conservative state of Kentucky, and lots of people in that state who are conservative and now are Trumpist uh, are very socially conservative. So now he supports conservative policies, for example, so-called pro-life anti-abortion policies. And so, yes, it was his desire to get the kinds of people he wanted on the U.S. Supreme Court. And it was the desire of many Trumpists, many people who voted for Trump uh, to get the kinds of people they wanted on the Supreme Court. And depending on whether they were social conservatives and cared about Uh, guns and cared about religion and cared about abortion, or they are more the mold of Mitch McConnell, care about taxes and and business regulation. Uh, They all joined together in common cause. 98% of Republicans who voted in the 2016 election voted for uh, Donald Trump.
0: It's fair to say, though, that the judges on the Supreme Court at the moment were approved by Republicans that don't have a majority in the Senate, that in fact don't represent a majority of the population of the United States, and were appointed by presidents who didn't win the popular vote.
1: Well, this is true, uh, except for in that group of six conservatives, uh, with the exception of Clarence Thomas, who was appointed by Bush 41, who did win the popular vote in 1988 when he succeeded Ronald Reagan. Uh, And the fact is, as well, that two members of the court in that conservative realm, Justice Alito and Chief Justice Roberts, while they were appointed by Bush 43, George W. Bush, they were appointed in his second term in which he did win the popular vote. But famously or infamously, depending on one's viewpoint, uh, he did lose the popular vote for his first term. So you could make the argument that all but one of these six conservatives Uh, does not in any way represent uh, the majority of the American people. And just this week, a number of polls have come out to show that the court is now way out of step, much more conservative than the American people on the issues of the day.
0: Should a justice such as Ruth Bader Ginsburg have retired earlier and been replaced by a like-minded judge? The fact that she died in office very late in a presidential term Uh, in a Republican presidential term, that she should have uh, retired when Barack Obama was president, perhaps in the early years, the first two years of his second term, and given him a chance to replace her, rather than hanging on for a few years after that.
1: I have to agree with that statement and I have made it on a number of occasions. I very much admired Justice Ginsburg and had the honor of speaking with her on some occasions and was once introduced by her at the Supreme Court for a speech that I gave from the Supreme Court Historical Society. So I very much admired her and her career and what she did for not just women's rights in this country, but gender equity. She fought for a lot of men to have uh, equity and parity in in our system where they did not with women and in in social security payments, for example. So uh, I very much admired her, but I think it would have behooved her and it would have preserved her legacy for both women's rights, gender equality, and her legacy on the Supreme Court itself if she had stepped aside. She had had uh, a number of diagnoses of cancer over the years, both colon cancer and pancreatic cancer. To her credit, she powered through them. She powered through chemotherapy and continued to serve with distinction on the court. But it was a not only a bad political decision on her part, I believe, to stay on the court until she passed away as we got closer to the, the election of 2020, but also to not get off in the Obama years. I should add that part of the reason that uh, Clarence Thomas is there is a similar situation. We had two very liberal justices from the Warren Court era, the first Black Justice Thurgood Marshall, who was a pioneer in the civil rights movement here, in particularly in the judicial realm, but also uh, William Brennan, who was a leading figure in the Warren Court era. They both stayed uh, into their 80s. And instead of getting off when Jimmy Carter was the president, Jimmy Carter ended up, As a one-term president with not one member of the court, even so, he did not make his mark on the court in any way. But those two liberal justices waited too long, and they were therefore not able to carry on when they became ill. And it's because of that that uh, George H.W. Bush was able to replace them with a very conservative Clarence Thomas and a more moderate conservative David Souter, but he retired some years ago.
0: So you're talking about left and right or Republican and Democrat on the court. Is that always the way it divides or are there other fault lines like states' rights versus federal rights, individual versus government?
1: More, I would say the latter, because as we pointed out, these people are not in elections and they are they are the subject of elections, but they are not standing for election themselves. They are not meant to represent parties. Uh, we have had some members of the court, I think of, of, of a gentleman called Lewis Powell, who was from the Commonwealth of Virginia, where I am today. And uh, he was considered a swing vote. He was appointed by Nixon, but became a, a swing vote. Sometimes he'd vote with the conservatives sometimes with the Republicans. He would refused to vote in elections even once he came on the court. He said, I, I should be completely devoid of politics. So he no longer voted in American elections at any level. Uh, so we have had some members of the court who look at Their role that way. But I think most of them do try to stay away from, or at least up until fairly recently, tried to stay away from partisanship. Uh, But they definitely have their views on how they are to interpret not just the Constitution, but laws that come before them, the actions of members of government at all levels. They sometimes are asked to review that to see if it's constitutional. Does it violate part of the Bill of Rights? And we also should add, they only hear now and fully decide 50 or 60 cases. When I was in graduate school in the 80s, they were deciding in full oral arguments with full opinions, 160 cases. Uh, So there are a host of reasons why that has dwindled to 50 or 60. But a, a number of those cases each year now, as it has been for years, will be cases that don't have fault lines that are conservative liberal republican or democrat they're much more technical than that in the law Uh, but it's the hot button social issues and political issues that we all pay attention to in Mm. in the american polity
0: finally then how important is the chief justice is he just one vote or does he have an influence over the other eight
1: the chief justice is said in Latin to be primus inter pares, the first among equals. He is able to run the conferences and the justices meet uh, in strict confidence. No other members of the court there, no clerks, no secretaries, no staff. So in deciding which cases to take, he runs those conferences. Once they have heard a case, an oral argument, then he runs the conference where they take their votes and begin to establish the fact. That, that will exist if it's not a unanimous vote. And he runs the oral arguments, but his vote counts just for one vote. And uh, in this instance, because this current chief justice, who I think cares more about the court as an institution, how it appears to the American people, uh, has somewhat deviated from, I think, his fellow conservatives. And therefore, now there are five conservatives, one chief justice who's a bit more moderate and three liberals. And even though we'll continue to call it the Roberts court for John Roberts, the current chief justice, uh, I think it's not too much of an exaggeration to say he's lost control of this court.
0: Barbara, I hope we get the chance to talk about this again, and I'm sure we will, given that the makeup of the court is going to be a huge part of the midterm elections in November this year and the next presidential election in two years. Is that fair to say as well?
1: Yes, it will indeed, and within the next two to three weeks, the abortion decision will be handed down officially, and that leak of the case Uh, Several weeks ago was a very damaging action for the court. And so that will continue to keep things astir in this country and its politics.
0: Barbara, thank you so much for talking to us.
1: Thank you, Rod. Superb questions, as always. Overnights with Rod Quinn
0: on ABC Radio.